I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. The process of individual and couples recovery is a long one for sure. It's something that oftentimes can feel very overwhelming. And a lot of the times people feel like they don't really have any real clear sense of direction of where they're going or how long it's supposed to take. And as a therapist who's worked with these issues for over 20 years, I get concerned about that. I get concerned about how unorganized and nebulous and confusing this process can be. And so I wanted to invite on the show one of my good friends and fellow marriage and family therapist, Sam Tielemans, to talk about ways that we can shorten and clarify and really improve our ability to help individuals and couples heal from the impact of sexual betrayal, trauma, and such without compromising the integrity of what needs to happen to do a really thorough healing in this process. If there are better ways to do it, if there are things that we might miss that could really make a difference, we want to make sure we catch all of those. We want to make sure that we're really using the best information possible, the best strategies. And so Sam and I, we talk a lot, and this is something that we both care deeply about. We do very similar work in the same space, working with couples, healing from betrayal. And I just wanted to have him on here so we could have a really open, informal conversation about ways that we're both working to try and not only shorten the process, but make it more effective. And like I said, and maintain the integrity of the work that has to happen so there can be thorough healing. Like I said, Sam's a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's out of Las Vegas. And he also is trained in EMDR, neurolinguistic programming. And he also does a lot of education with his online courses. And he has a podcast. And Sam's just a really great guy, like I said, and just a great person to talk to. Very intelligent, well-read, and does a lot of his own personal work to really understand these issues. And just really grateful for his willingness to come spend some time with us today on the podcast to talk about these things. So let's jump right into my conversation with Sam Tielemans. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's so great to connect with you again and talk about recovery stuff and helping couples and individuals heal. One of the things I know you and I both worked in this area for a long time. And one of the things that I think I hear a lot from people and I even get frustrated with is sometimes how long this process can take. I mean, I know that we live in a world of instant everything. I mean, you can even have your groceries delivered to your house now. And I mean, everybody, everybody is just expecting everything. We do. We just expect things to happen a lot faster than they ever have. And yet a lot of the deep changes that have to happen for somebody to live with sexual integrity or to heal trauma or do some of these works, some of these things to make a long-term relationship work and overcome all these betrayals. Some of that stuff is just like moves at a snail's pace and it can be maddening for those of us helping and those people going through it. And so I'd love to jump in today and talk about what are some of the things you've seen that help expedite the process a little bit more without shortchanging the deeper recovery that is really required to do this. And, and I think there's kind of some art and science to this, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, so I, when I started working with people back in like 2012, that was when I was starting to get trained and thinking like, okay, this is an issue that I want to learn how to help with. Yeah. Traditionally, that was what I was told. It takes three to five years. And most of the literature that you read, that's what it says. And for a lot of people, it does. So it makes sense why they would say that. And I, 
as I was getting trained, I'm like, there's got to be things that we can do along the way that can speed that up a bit, yet still make it thorough. And so as I've been like, and I'm obsessed with like trainings and going to workshops and doing all this stuff, like there's like a handful of different things that I'll, I'll test out and see if this works. And like, ah, oh, that doesn't really apply or this applies. So I've just like over the years have gone to this catalog of, of tools and things that I just enjoy doing just because I like, again, I like the process of learning and helping people faster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so as I've kind of reflected on why people struggle, because I think we can, we can either talk about the individual or even the couple side of it too, but maybe we can start the individual piece of it. When somebody's struggling with addiction, I've tried to figure out, okay, okay, what's this about? And as we all know, and as you know, it's a coping mechanism. And so I think, okay, what are people coping from? And usually it's like underlying unaddressed, like negative emotions or shame or negative beliefs, or sometimes it's just a habit for people. So there's different levels on which I think people struggle. But I think by far and away, the most common and the, the area that I think a lot of people don't address earlier in the process is working through their negative beliefs, specifically mm-hmm. feeling like beliefs of being a failure, belief of not being enough, belief of being unworthy. And I think that is the number one culprit about in terms of why people struggle for such a long time. I can share with you dozens of examples. I started working with somebody last week and the main challenge that they were having was this belief about I'm not worthy. And in terms of like their church activity, he'd go through this process of repenting and making sure that he's on track in terms of a spiritual way, but then he'd be serving in a spiritual capacity, but still underneath all that say like, I, I'm, I shouldn't be here. Like I shouldn't be serving in this capacity. I'm not worthy of this, even though he was by any account, you know, as he's working with his church leaders and things, he just like, he still just couldn't believe that he was worthy. And his home base emotional home base was I'm an addict and this is just what I do. And I'm ultimately like, I'm going to be struggling with this for a long time. So he shared with me, he was doing well. And then like something happened, he got triggered, then went right back to the addiction. And then he said, there was this like strange feeling of relief. And as I asked him about that, he said, it's like, that's where he kind of felt like he, like, that's the person that he was. He just felt at home struggling with the addiction which again is like, if somebody who doesn't really understand this were to hear that, they're like, well, how does that even make sense? I thought you wanted to get away from this addiction. And you say like, you kind of go back home to this place of it's relief. So I hope you know what I'm saying when I say like, yeah. there's these beliefs that people have that keep them anchored in the struggle unintentionally. Well, it's kind That's of what, like, it's kind of like what we see, you know, that phrase that, you know, you've probably heard before, you know, soldiers coming back, they're a warrior without a war. Like for them- yes bullets flying feels more comfortable to them than peacetime. Yep. And people that come from chaotic, abusive homes, they often pick fights a lot because they're just so used to, they know how to operate inside of drama, but they don't know how to operate when things are peaceful. They're always wondering what's coming. And so I think that when you've, when you've identified yourself as a loser or you know whatever, unworthy or these things like that, even though all the outside behaviors are aligning Internally, you can sabotage that really quickly to get back to what feels more true. Exactly. Yeah, I think, I t- it makes perfect sense, yeah. Sam. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a part of why people struggle for so long is because if that underlying subconscious belief, a lot of times, like people aren't even aware of it, if that's not addressed, like that's why the struggle is so like it's such a prolonged battle mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they're fighting against this internal force that says they're not enough. And the more they believe they're not enough, the more they believe that they're a failure and this is just their lot in life, you're going to find your way. I remember hearing somebody speak. He said that the strongest force in the human personality is to act 
congruently with how they see themselves. So if you mm. see yourself as an addict and that you're going to struggle with this for a long time, you're going to find some way to get back to that home base. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so some of the most important work that I'll do with people is helping them change these underlying beliefs, changing that home base emotionally, changing their identity so that then the addiction is so out of alignment with who they see themselves as now that there's no, like that inner conflict dissolves. Because if, you know, as I'm working with this individual, again, I had this session with him last week. My goal, like session number one is to start targeting these beliefs and help them shift and have like a change there. And so at the end of the session, he's like, I, you know, I have been worthy. Like I am okay. And there's a process that you can kind of guide people through, but that's the whole goal. I think that's why people struggle for a long time. That's one of the things I really love talking about is helping people shift these beliefs so that then they can find the freedom that they want because there's there's no longer like, I don't know, I think about these like weird images and analogies, but I think about like a climber. I've never really done this, but I see people climbing where they put their, see, I don't even know what it's called. Like like an uh, anchor? Anchor, them, anchor, okay. So they put yeah. an anchor in the wall and then they climb up and then it gets, you know, they unlatch it and then they put the anchor above them and climb yeah. up. I think people anchor to these negative beliefs so they can only get so far. Mm. They'll get X amount of days sobriety. And then eventually they fall back because again, Mm -hmm. that's the familiar place. So Mm -hmm. we have to free them of those anchors so they can finally move forward without ever feeling like, well, I can't get too far away because, you know, it's out of alignment with who I am, even though it's, again, it's not even like a conscious thing. But I think that's such a huge area that many people don't get to for a long time, which I think we can do that a lot sooner. I think this is common. Also, I see this a lot with people who are struggling to lose weight. I had a a family member years ago, you know, 15, 20 years ago, who who did do a, I think it's a bariatric procedure where there was some weight loss surgery. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of it, but anyway, and she had gone, you know, from 300 plus pounds down to a size, you know, probably half that, a size that was just half her size. And it was, and for her, it was like the first time in her life, adult life that she had felt or that she looked the way she wanted. But she talked about how looking like this was torture for her because her mind and her view of self had not caught up with that. So she had this really radical procedure where the weight came off within weeks, months, but her view of self was lagging way behind. And she says that that was, she just described it as hell on earth uh-huh. to be in, in the, the official body she wanted, but having a view of self that just was totally stuck. And I And I see this a lot with people that are trying to overcome compulsive behaviors, addictive behaviors, is that there's such a push early on from loved ones, themselves, therapists, church leaders to make it look like it needs to look behaviorally, which really is quite concrete and straightforward. You know, you know where the lines are, you know what you're supposed to be doing and you can get into that, but it can look like, well, don't you want this? You keep sabotaging this like your example earlier. And so behavior oftentimes will precede this deeper stuff, this longer term shift view of self that whether it's weight loss or sexual acting out or whatever the behavior might be, it takes a while to catch up to that. And this is part of what you're saying. You're looking for ways to expedite closing that gap sooner so that they can actually maintain the gains that they've behaviorally changed. Exactly. Because I think if you change from the inside, then all of the behaviors can naturally follow that. It's almost like you know, if you're, okay, I have this analogy. Again, I might use a few of these like weird analogies. Yeah, they're great. But I think about like a stack of dominoes, right? If 10 dominoes are standing up and you knock the first one over, then of course the next one falls and the next one falls. So often people's efforts are geared towards making sure that final domino, the 10th domino doesn't fall over. 
which in this analogy represents a relapse. So I guess I imagine if you have these like massive door sized dominoes, they're behind the 10th one and propping that last one up as much as they can to make sure that thing doesn't fall over. Because if they Mm do, then again, it just like feels like sets them back to square one and all of what that means for them. And so they spend so much of their attention and energy making sure the final one doesn't fall. So as I've been working with people, I'm like, okay, how do we like, let's make domino number one, the target of our sessions. And make sure that we can address that because if that first one doesn't fall, then the rest of them, they almost take care of themselves, right? And I think there's a place for relapse prevention type of stuff. I think those strategies and plans are important. If the first domino is never addressed though, or isn't addressed till year two, there's so much energy that's expended trying to prevent the fall instead of eliminating that and diffusing those early triggers in the first place. And so I think that's such an important part that Again, so many people maybe are not aware of, but is overlooked, but that's all the identity stuff. Mm-hmm. And changing those beliefs, changing the identity will naturally make it so these triggers don't pull them back to these old cycles that they've been trying to avoid, you know, most of the time for, their, for most of their adult or even for, like most people I would guess that you work with as well, like early exposure and then it starts to develop into a habit. And then ultimately it's like something they can't get away from, but it's like years and years that they struggle with. You shift that identity, then again, it's like the process. You cut down on the time so much faster, but it's still like, it's even more thorough in my opinion, because you're dealing with the core of it. Totally. And I think it's normal when you're, when you're younger or even, you know, in a family or, you know, church context or the, the, you know, there's a lot of high expectations for ourselves and from others. It's easy to conflate behavior and identity. And so there's a lot of, right. So there's a lot of behaviors that are going on. And so it's almost irrefutable. It's like, well, this is what I must be or who I am. And we just know that that's not helpful one and not true. Right. And so I'm glad you're touching on it because that's a part of the process is helping people separate behavior and identity. Like I remember me personally, this, this one concept and Brene Brown, like I got this from her, this, the first exposure that I had to her when I was uh, 27, I was in grad school. I remember being a teen and I just kind of felt depressed and there's really no reason for it. Like things were fine. I didn't like middle school. Like you get bullied in middle school and I had my group of friends in high school and we hung out every day, but like there was this underlying sense of being bad and I couldn't make sense of it when I was young. And I grew up in a religious household and I'm still very religious myself and I, it's an important aspect of who I am. I remember when I was young, I would get the message, be Christ-like. So inevitably when I was not Christ-like, I internalized that as I'm bad and I didn't know that I was doing it. Again, it was like years and I would just kind of feel bad. I would feel off. Right. It wasn't until I was in grad school when I read Brene Brown where she separated guilt from shame. And I thought to myself, this is what I've been doing the whole time. Like I've been in shame my entire life since I started feeling like this, like, I don't know, I guess entire life. This would be like early teens. And I didn't know it was happening. So I would conflate, I'd made this mistake or I had this judgmental thought or I was, you know, said this harsh thing to somebody else. Then I would make that mean I'm a bad person. And it wasn't until the aware, like that awareness and the process that followed literally changed my life because now I, I don't think in those terms at all. Like mm-hmm. I never, it, the thought never crosses my mind anymore that I'm a bad person. It's just like my identity, my belief, my thought process on that has completely changed. I might still make the same mistakes, but it is filtered in a different way. So it's like, oh, that didn't work. or Why did I make that decision? And then I go back and try to just course correct, but it doesn't go to shame anymore. And I think what you're saying, the separation between behavior and identity is a big part of what help, can help people make that change as well. Yeah, accelerate that process. And, I, and, and 
you know, I, I'm always I'm fascinated a lot with uh, uh, shadow work from Carl Jung, some of this uh-huh. stuff, and I, even though I don't <clears throat> subscribe to a lot of you know stuff that some of these early pioneers did, I I think he was right about this. Yep, and I'm so fascinated by it because. Everything I want to do naturally is to avoid looking at my own, you know, blind spots, shadow, the the things in me that are really stubborn and keep coming up and sabotaging the things I want most. Yep. And that and and those comes from those things come from those beliefs we're talking about. And and I know in my own life when I've needed to make behavioral changes, relationship changes, I feel a deep sense of relief when I feel like I finally got it buttoned down. And everybody, my wife, my, my kids, everybody around me, we all agree that like things are better. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because, because it's measurable and I'm, do, it, it, you yeah. know, I'm just t- speaking for myself, like, oh, I won't do this anymore. Or this is going to be different, you know, whether it's showing up on time or whatever it might be. Yep. And, and of course the, the comedy of this, if, if you want to call it that, is that this, this sort of unexamined part, this part of me that I'm not in contact with, that I've been unwilling to look at or that I'm afraid to see, or I don't, I hope it's still not there. Yeah. That's the piece that's really driving the bus here, right? 100%. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. Like if you capture it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, And if I can turn around and make contact with that and face it and talk about it, look at it, then that's where the, that's where the deeper change happens. But I'm telling you, it is so seductive to just get back to like, triple, double, triple, quadruple my efforts on the behavioral level, because that really does in a way protect me from having to look at myself. For sure. Right. A hundred percent. And I think that's what most people do. It's yeah. human nature. Nobody human nature. wants to take a look at that because it's painful. It's, it can be overwhelming. One thing that's helped, one thing that's really helped me in that process is if maybe I'll take one step back. I think one of the reasons why it's so painful is because of the meaning that we make out of it. Yeah. So like I'll work with people where if the wife is hurting and tells her husband, hey, like I just, you know, things were going along. Okay. Let me share a quick example here. Because the relation, it, it applies equally in the relationship as well. The change work that needs to pl- take place within the marriage. I remember working with somebody and they were having a great, like they were doing well in their process and they went out and they were like out golfing or something. And then the husband turns to his wife and says, hey, today has just been such a great day. And then instantly she starts to cry. And he was like so blindsided. And he's like, what just happened? Like we're out here golfing. We went to lunch. We're laughing. We're talking. And then I say this comment, appreciating the time that we have together. And you're crying now? <laughs> he couldn't understand it. Right. And so we come in session the next week and he brought that up and we're processing that. And she just talks about how even though they were having a great day in the past, there were also great days, but this other stuff was going on. So it just kind of triggered this pain for her and he didn't know what to do in that moment. And so one of the reasons why I think men struggle within the relationship context as well and helping their wife heal from the pain is because of what they make it mean. In other words, if husband turns to the wife or let's say the other way around, let's say the wife shares with the husband, Hey, I'm struggling today. Hey, I got triggered today. Hey, this thing happened. It reminded me of this other thing. And I can't believe this is like, I can't believe that you did this to me. Like, how could you have, how could you have done this and and wrecked, you know, know, whatever she says, right? Brings up her pain. So often when the husband is confronted with that, they go back to this identity of like, look at who I am as a person. I'm a bad person. I'm a bad husband. Like what kind of person does this to his wife? Like everything is filtered through this identity channel when really it's not about who he is as a person. It's about the actions and the approach and the decisions that he made 
which again are so separate than who he is. So when we're doing our underlying work, if it's filtered through, well, I have this weak spot here and I have a weakness here and I'm not very good at this thing here. If we make that mean then that I'm deficient or I'm unworthy or I'm not enough, it's so hard to do that work because of what you're making it mean. So again, that's one of the things that's helped me tremendously personally, because I'm a huge fan of my own work. Like I love personal progress and development and growth. Oh yeah. But like that separation for me allows me to address like just like just about anything really, because I don't make it mean anything about me anymore, whereas I used to. And it was like so hard to address stuff because of how I interpreted that about me. This concludes part one of my two-part interview with Sam Tielemans. We will finish up this interview in the next episode. And you can also head over to fromcrisistoconnection.com where you can download my free guide for how to end marriage arguments. Thanks for being here and we will catch you in the next episode.